Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Hello, folks, and welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. We really appreciate you listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. Folks, Tane, tell them we're back. We're back live and together. Reunited and it feels so good. Mm. So, Tane, you know we always seem to learn as much from heading up NJO as the class participants learn from us. Yeah, that's right. One of the benefits of leading NJ all all these years is that we're always updating ourselves on the law, and we learn things from the class participants too. Absolutely. That's really true this last session because today's episode is an example of one of those topics that I was not keenly aware of and that we recently utilized in Augusta following a jury trial conviction. I want to give just a quick shout out to my awesome summer intern, Mr. J.B. Bryant. For his help in conducting some of the uh, research concerning this episode, Tane, he's like in the top few people of his class at South Carolina. Hmm. Well, I wasn't in the top few people of my class, but I could see the top of the middle of my class from where I was. Absolutely. I can identify with that. So tell the folks what we're talking about today, Tane. Yeah. Today we're talking about departing from mandatory minimum sentences. And we're going to focus on violent felony cases. So the, if, you're, if you've got a serious violent felony case defined as a murder, armed robbery, kidnapping, rape, aggravated child molestation, aggravated sodomy, or aggravated, aggravated sexual battery, look at 17-10-6.1 if there is any conversation concerning deviating from the mandatory minimum. And that's in the OCGA, right, Wade? Every time a statue decided, an angel gets his wings. That's right. Um, so under 1710 6.1e, in the court's discretion, the court can depart from the mandatory minimum sentence on one of these serious violent felonies when the prosecuting attorney and the defendant have agreed to a sentence that is below that mandatory minimum. And that's really important because if there's not such agreement by both sides, you just simply can't depart in those serious felony cases. Now, as we talk, uh, as today goes on and we talk more in this episode about other statutes and other kinds of cases, you can depart sometimes without an agreement. But it's important to note that as in serious violent felonies, you can't. That's correct. Without an agreement. So let's talk about why someone or why the court might want to depart and why the parties might want to agree to depart on the mandatory minimum sentence in such a case. So let's let's look at a murder case, for example. In the murder case, we know that the maximum sentence is life without parole, but also it's possible to sentence to life with the possibility of parole. So that we, we know that if a sentence of life with parole is imposed, no portion of that sentence can be probated. Tane, we know that if it's a life sentence, none of that can be probated. We know that, right? Yes, we do. Because we talked about that in prior episodes, right? We did. And if you go back to those prior episodes, and please do, um, you'll hear us talking about why that is. So, Tane, we also know that the parole guidelines 
And I think there's even a statute on it, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's OCGA section 17-10-6.1, subsection C. Every time a statue decided, an angel gets his wing. That's going to get really old because we have a lot of statutes on today's episode. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but I like hitting that button. I, I really know, and do. I just I just like envisioning those little angels getting their wings. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it, it would require – so in, in those cases of uh, the parole guidelines, it would require the defendant to serve 30 years before being considered for parole in a life sentence. So let's assume that the defendant is willing, for whatever reason, to plead guilty tank to in a murder case now. Mm-hmm. And if, if the Senate – but they're only really willing to – sort of take the chance out of the game, and as, I, as some of them might say, if that sentence can dip below that mandatory minimum. So the plea from the prosecutor's standpoint would ease the burden on the victim's family, potentially remove a possibility of a not guilty verdict. There might be any number of reasons a prosecutor might want to do it, especially post-pandemic. Yeah, that's right. And if the parties agree to a sentence of, let's say, 25 years to serve with life on probation, then the defendant gets the benefit of being guaranteed his or her release in 25 years instead of only being potentially eligible for parole in 30 years. You know, Tane, a lot of the people, at least where I am, that are charged with murder, they haven't been alive for 25 years. Yeah, that's true. And so, you know, trying to envision a sentence that's 25 or 30 years or longer than that is is really hard for somebody that age to grasp. And so, but if you can fashion a sentence where they might be able to get out at a time certain that might be palatable to them. And as you said, the DA might agree to it for reasons uh, that you stated. So under OCGA 17.10 6.1C4. Every time a statue decided, an angel gets his wings. A lot of angels get Should I stop that? You probably should. Okay. That specifically requires that no parole be granted if a defendant is convicted of one of these serious violent felonies and receive something other than a life sentence. So in other words, the statute has envisioned that whatever amount of time that would be ordered to be served would be to the door, as the kids say. That's right, those crazy kids. Um, So the important thing to note with respect to these serious violent felonies is that the court cannot deviate without the agreement of the prosecutor and the defendant. There's no requirement, though, in these cases that any specific findings be made or included except the obvious one that everyone is in agreement. Tane, I usually do something like put that in the order in the in the section where you can write, you know, other data or whatever. Do you do the same? Yeah, I, I think it's important when you're, you know, documenting what was done that, that there be some notation, particularly on the sentencing sheet, that there was an agreement between the state and the defense. You know, prior to NJO, I really, I, I was generally aware that this statute existed, but I wasn't, I mean, I've always thought that you had to like agree to a plea to something like voluntary manslaughter to get away from a life sentence where there's a homicide. I, did, I, I just wasn't aware that this was out there. And now that I've been told that by one of our NJO participants, I realized, oh, they've actually built in some safeguards in this statute for example, that you'd have to do all the time to the door, et cetera. I mean, do y'all do that very often? No, it's not something that comes up very often, but it is one of those things that in in a particular case of unusual circumstances, it, it's actually, I guess, kind of handy. And it it's one of the provisions, if I remember correctly, that was put in place back in the uh, 2011 revisions to the criminal code um, when we were doing some some criminal justice reform back in those days. So 
Let's talk about some other statutes that allow for judges to depart from what can be some pretty severe mandatory minimums, but that are different than these serious violent felony cases. Where do you want to start? Sure. So let's start with the next section, trafficking trafficking in illegal drugs. And that code section is essentially uh, OCGA section 16-13-31G2. Now, there's another subsection. That's G1 of that 16-13-31. Right. That talks about the DA having the authority to move the court to deviate or even potentially suspend a sentence for trafficking based upon, quote, substantial assistance, end quote, in a prosecution. We're not really talking about that, correct? That's right. I mean, that's a circumstance where somebody's provided assistance to the DA in other crimes or providing some evidence to them or some assistance. But yeah, we're not talking about that. What we're talking about is... Subsection G2A, which says, in the court's discretion, the judge may depart from the mandatory minimum sentence specified for a person who is convicted of a violation of this code section as set forth in subparagraph B of this paragraph if the judge concludes that. And then there are some factors that we go through. So if the judge concludes, the judge can depart. So if the judge concludes, and I'll read the first one, the, de- the defendant was not a leader of criminal of the criminal conduct. That's right. And the second is the defendant did not possess or use a firearm, dangerous weapon, or hazardous object during the crime. Three, the criminal conduct did not result in the death or serious bodily injury to a person other than a person who was a party to the crime. Four, the defendant has no prior felony conviction and... Yes, yeah, not an or, it's and. Five, the interest of justice will not be served by the imposition of the prescribed mandatory minimum sentence. So, Wade, first of all, all of those factors have to be present before the court can exercise its discretion to depart. You have to make findings of those facts, correct? Absolutely. And um, I think we can agree that that would be a fairly unusual set of circumstances. And in particular, when you have a trafficking case, at least in my jurisdiction, it's pretty unusual that the person hadn't had any other felony prior conviction. Yeah, that's usually the factor that catches people. Now, if you are going to depart from the mandatory minimums under this statute, there is yet another subsection, subsection G2B, that says that there are limits to how far you can depart. It doesn't let you play somebody on straight probation or, or suspend a sentence or whatever. There are some limits, and they're all based upon the weight, the type of drugs, et cetera. And, and there's no reason to go through that, but it's in there that there is a limit to how far you can depart. Yeah, and and I would just caution you that if the, if you are going to depart, make sure that you go over that subsection um, with your prosecutors and your defendants on the record to make sure that you're not violating the limits that are placed on you in, in making that departure. You mean you should open a book? Somebody ought to. <laughs> so if the judge reduces the mandatory minimum sentence prescribed under this paragraph on there, this is, I guess, subsection C, mm-hmm. that the judge will has to specify on the record the circumstances for the reduction and the interest served by the departure. If that happens, the state can appeal that order under the, the statute that allows the state to appeal only in certain circumstances. That's right. And, and, and so, so listen carefully to what Wade just said there. In addition to finding all five of those factor, factors, the court also has to put on the record some interest that is served by the departure. And that's really kind of a sixth factor. So in the court's discretion, the judge can depart from the mandatory minimum sentence provided in this particular code section 
if the prosecutor and defense lawyer have agreed. So in other words, it's sort of an or taint. Right. You can use your discretion and depart judge and you got to make all these findings. You don't mm -hmm. have to do this one in writing. We'll talk about one in a minute that you have to do in writing, but you have to make them on the record. Right. It's appealable. Right. But oh, I guess, or if the prosecutor and defendant agree, right. we don't have to make the finding. That is correct. And nobody can appeal that. Right. Uh, except for Collier. <laughs> well, yeah. And we've, we've co covered the Collier case on some other episodes, um, but uh, that might be a factor uh, or, or that might be a separate reason that there might be an appeal. But they can't appeal because of this reason. That's exactly right. Okay. And, and, and so it, it's, it's really important that you, um, that you understand the difference. There. Now, Tane, there's a brand new case called Gage. My boy, uh, JB, found this. Gage, G-A-G-E. Yes. And it doesn't even have a, a court of appeals official site. Well, that's, that's brand spanking new law. Wait, it's probably still, off the press. still got the tags on it. 856 Southeast 2nd, 440 is the, SC, the secondary site, 2021 case. It specifically finds, and this is something that's going to, we're going to echo throughout this, this episode, Tane, mm -hmm. that even if the judge finds the five factors to have existed, that doesn't mean the judge has to depart from the mandatory minimum. That's right. And think about how these situations normally arise. If everybody agrees, then that means the prosecution and the defense have already talked about this and everybody's in agreement, obviously. But the other way that it's normally going to arise is that the defendant is going to raise in a motion that the five factors exist and call upon the judge to exercise discretion to deviate from the mandatory minimum. So you might have a circumstance where the defense makes a a good showing that all five of those factors are present, but the court says, nah, not yeah. that, not that case. And, and that's one of the things that we're going to talk about. If you have discretion, you got to exercise the discretion. You can't make it a factually false finding that they didn't establish one of these factors. Yeah. You just say, okay, you, you, you've proven all five of those factors and I hereby exercise my discretion to, and refuse or reject the offer to, Depart from the mandatory minimum. Yes. Thank you, but no thank you. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So, folks, just, just understand, it is a, an abuse of discretion to not exercise your discretion. Yeah. So, don't be like uh, a gentleman I uh, encountered who was a judge out in New Mexico a few years ago who said, uh, well, we have a, a simple rule, and that is uh, when in doubt, max his ass. And, and I was like, well, I guess that works right for y'all in New Mexico. I don't know. <laughs> Yikes. But that is a perfect example of uh, we don't exercise any discretion. We just give them the maximum sentence. So, Tane, we've talked about trafficking. We've talked about serious violent felonies. Let's talk about those sexual offenses that don't fall within the definition of the serious violent felonies. Now, Tane, we know this statute. This is the statute that requires you to split a sentence in a sexual offense case every single time. Right. We've uh, we've talked about this in, in previous podcasts. It's OCGA section 17-10-6.2, which requires in these sexual offenses cases for you to add at least one year of probation at the end of the sentence, except a life sentence, right, Wade? But, right. And none of these have life sentences. Right. That's why you we know we can't probate a life sentence. That's right. All of these offenses do not have potential life sentences as one of the punishments. And that's why we knew they were in the other statute, like aggravated child molestation, et cetera, instead of this statute. So, Tane, tell the folks what the offenses are that are considered 
sexual offenses under what we're about to discuss. Sure. Those are aggravated assault with attempt to rape, false imprisonment if the victim is less than 14 years of age, sodomy, statutory rape if the person convicted is 21 years of age or older, child molestation, enticing a child for indecent purposes, improper sexual contact by an employee or agent, incest, second or subsequent conviction for sexual battery, and sexual exploitation of children. So under this code section, under subsection C, if the court's in the court's discretion, the court can deviate from the mandatory minimum sentence. Either one, when the prosecuting attorney and the defendant have agreed to a sentence below that mandatory minimum, or provided that, and then there's some other factors. These, these are completely separate factors from the ones we read before. That's right. The first one is that the defendant has no prior conviction for any offense prohibited by OCGA 16-6-whatever or 16-12-3.3 subsection 2. That's right. And the next uh, requirement is that the defendant did not use a deadly weapon. See that the court has not found that any evidence of a prior relevant similar transaction. D, the victim did not suffer any intentional physical harm during the commission of the offense. Yeah, we're going to talk about that a little more in a minute. Mm -hmm. E, the offense did not involve transportation of the victim and, not or, and. F, the victim was not physically restrained during the commission of the offense. So if the court is deviating from the mandatory minimum sentence pursuant to this subsection, the, George ha the judge has to issue a written order. Now, you had to make findings and all the other ones that you have to make a written order here, right, Tane? That's right. Any, that any such order is appealable by the defendant and by the state unless, Tane, that sentence, that departure is being imposed pursuant to an agreement between the parties. Yeah, we're, we're not going to let you make an agreement and then appeal us. Yeah, it's like, uh, nah, didn't mean it. Except for calling you. Except for calling you. Um, so in these cases, have you, have you done some of these? Um, yeah, I think just two, if I remember correctly. Well, two of the things that seem to come up a good bit, number one, I guess one of them is that the, defend, the victim did not suffer any physical harm. There, a lot of times when there is sexual contact between an adult and a child, there is physical harm. And it is quite possible that the um, there was harm to the child. I, I'll leave it at that. Right. And, and, and this is a situation where in one of these hearings, you may actually have to hear evidence and just make a determination because one side's probably going to say there was no physical harm and the other side's going to say, yes, there was. And, and you'll have to hear the evidence and make your own determination. The other point of controversy that frequently comes up is no evidence of a prior similar transaction that that. that a lot of times these cases involve a number of offenses, some of which reported, some of which may be outside the statute, et cetera. And that usually becomes a thing when the state is contesting a departure from these mandatory minimums. So, right. so we're back to the court having discretion on these sexual offenses where the parties agree or that the court exercises its discretion and makes those findings. Tain, Tell them about Daniels and McCraney. Yeah, so if the court is departing from the mandatory minimums on using its own discretion, um, first of all, the required findings must be made in writing. That's a big deal. So uh, we've talked to you about a couple of other statutes where you have to make the findings on the record. But here you actually have to make 
written findings. And that's the Daniels case, 344 Georgia Appeals 190, 2018. McCraney, 335, McCraney versus State, sorry. Uh, 335 Georgia Appeals 548, 2016 case. In both of those cases, they were reversed on appeal because there were no written findings as a part of the record. That's right. And we don't like it when that happens. But hey, don't worry about writing down those case sightings because folks, you can always find the citations in our notes that are located on our website at goodjudgepod.com. Excellent, Wade. So that's pretty good promo. Yeah, it really was. So if the court is departing on, the mo- on its own motion, we've talked about both sides have the right to file an appeal. I, you kind of wonder why they would, but then the defendant probably appeals simply because the judge refused to exercise his or her discretion in even considering the possibility of a deviation. We've talked about it, Tane. If you have discretion, it is abuse of discretion not to, not to exercise it. You don't have to do it simply because they prove the evidence that would justify it, but you have to consider it, right? Frequently a good idea to say, I am exercising my discretion and I am declining to depart from the mandatory minimum. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day at, at another function and I said, you know, sometimes there are policies that are in your head. Don't let them come out of your mouth. Yeah, if you find yourself wanting to say something on the record like, I never depart from the mandatory minimums or I always give the maximum sentence, these are thoughts that you might want to keep inside your head. They're better there. Let's talk about the Hedden case, uh, Wade. So in Hedden, this is, this is one of these cases, Tane, that you and I have discussed somewhat because we both had some of these sexual ex- exploitation of minor cases where a person would be in possession of what most people call child porn. Right. Multiple, multiple pieces of child porn on a computer or, or, or maybe in hard copy format somehow. I have one of these on appeal, so I won't talk about it too much. But, but the question becomes frequently, is that one offense or can you make a separate offense for each you know, picture or each video or whatever? So, but in Hedden, this, it's a sexual exploitation case, but it's a little bit different issue. In their photographs and videos that they had stored on their computers, these defendants, some of these pictures depicted, at least one, depicted a child being restrained when the picture was taken. That's right. And in that case, the trial court said that essentially it did not have the discretion to depart from the mandatory minimum because in one of the pictures, um, there was a child that was being restrained. And as we said a moment ago, one of the factors has to be uh, that essentially no one was restrained during the sexual act. So the, the trial judge said, I don't have the discretion. And as a result, they went up on appeal, and basically the, the appellate court said, Tane, you do have the discretion because the restraint deals with as you were possessing, as you were committing the crime. So as you were possessing the illegal object, was the child restrained? In other words, the defendant wasn't the one who actually physically restrained the child who was depicted in the photographs. It was the photographs themselves that were in the defendant's possession. And so what the court said was, because it wasn't the defendant, the court did actually have the discretion to deviate if it wished to do so. And so what they did was reverse the ruling and sent it back for resentencing for the court to make a determination under the statute as to whether or not it wanted to exercise discretion to deviate from the mandatory minimum. 
And, you know, that's one of those things where the court absolutely has that discretion. You need to find it. But, I mean, the appellate decision didn't say this specifically, but it's sort of put in there. You could sentence to exactly what you just sentenced to, but you have to, if you have the discretion, you, you can't make a fault, an incorrect factual finding that you don't have the discretion. You know, Tane, it's always been my experience. The smarter move is to find that the factors were proven and exercise my discretion not to depart. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if you didn't want to depart in the first place, um, you know, then then that would be a finding that would cover all the bases. But, you know, uh, the, the court sent it back so that the trial court could say, OK, well, I do now have the discretion. Maybe I do want to deviate. I just didn't think I had it before. So once again, there's no requirement that the court exercise its discretion at any time. Discretion, beautiful part about discretion. That's what it means. It's just an error to refuse to exercise it or to make a factual finding that says the, the facts don't support it when in, it turns out the appellate courts disagree with you. And that Gage case, for example, that we talked about before, that's an example. That was on the trafficking statute. That's an example. That's right. So just don't announce that policy, Tane. You said sometimes things live better in your head? Yeah, just kind of keep those things in your head. If you have a policy of never deviating below mandatory minimum sentences, uh, you're still required to exercise discretion. So just keep that policy up in your head because there may come that unusual case sometime where you actually realize you don't have a policy uh, and, and you are going to exercise your discretion as you should. So thank you for listening to the Good Judgment podcast. And we've talked about this discretion thing. Tame, you told the folks, or you had me tell them earlier, where they might find this outline. Where, where can they go? Yes, as with all of our podcasts, this outline for this podcast, along with the case citations and statutory sites, can be found at our website at goodjudgepod.com. Now, folks, if you want to send us some suggested topics, this, that, this topic was actually one that was suggested by one of our listeners. Please reach out to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. That's goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Thank you, folks, and we appreciate you listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. Well, folks, that's all we have for another exciting and enthralling topic here on the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to the entire University of Georgia College of Law for assisting in our recording. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But nobody can get it all. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Thanks to our NJO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions, and they do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise, but please contact someone else with any complaints. But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You've been doing a great job doing that. We really appreciate the help. You can also visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Hey, Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this one. Any last thoughts before we wrap up this session? Elvis has left the building. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Mint Podcast.